0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Kate Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Hey, just a quick interruption to point out that this is our 100th episode. Our very first episode was released nearly two years ago on June 17th, 2020. That means in just a couple weeks, it's our two-year anniversary. In all this time, we've never missed a week. We've recorded over holidays and vacations because we love it. We love meeting with some of the incredible people in our community. We love bringing you the news of cool things people are doing and exciting developments. We love being a part of your week. So thank you. Thank you for following us along in this journey. Thank you for being part of the great developer community that we love talking about. And finally, thank you for listening. Now, let's jump into the news. First up, the big news this week was Livebook version 0.6 was announced. So we got a link to a Twitter thread from Jose Valim. It's an eight-part Twitter thread that goes through a lot of the features, but there's also a livebook.dev blog article that helps dive into the content and also a YouTube video where Jose Valim walks through how to use this. So really, there's a lot of different ways to consume and figure out what's going on here because it is a pretty big deal. The big new feature is something called smart cells. So if you remember in a Livebook notebook, a cell is like a section of markdown code or elixir code, those are cells. So a smart cell is like a visual way of setting up and configuring something. And the example that was started off with in this is a database connection to a Postgres database. So it's kind of like a little wizard in that pops up and gives you inputs for putting in the username and password and, and the path to the database and, and everything that you need. From there, you also specify what variable to assign your database connection to. And then from there, you're able to add another smart cell that writes just plain SQL and lets you run straight up SQL queries against that database and automatically spits that out into a table of the results to make it a whole lot easier to consume. So I thought it was pretty cool that you can do all of that without writing any Elixir code. And that can mean that people on your team who are perhaps more data focused, that they can easily start getting involved with some of these things and help tease out the data and the things that are important. So one of the questions that I automatically thought when I was watching this is, so how easy is it to create a custom smart cell? And what does that look like? Wouldn't you know it, six minutes into the video, Jose explains that, yes, anyone can create their own smart cells. And I've got a link to the time signature in the YouTube video. If you want to jump in there, there's also in the uh, the other ways you can consume this. But another big change is that Livebook more natively understands packages. That means you're taking your data that's now in a table and you want to add a smart cell for a chart. And the chart says it recognizes that VegaLite library is needed. And it says, oh, VegaLite's not here. I'll pop up a little thing that says, hey, do you want to add VegaLite? And then you can even have a little click a button to search hex and show hex results and add more libraries right in there as well. It's like a lot of plumbing stuff has changed and and gotten improved with Livebook with this one. And the craziest part, I thought, was that you can take these little wizard-like cells, these smart cells, and convert them into Elixir code. So it actually converts it into the code used to actually get your database connection and run your SQL queries. And what I thought was just really cool about that is, and Jose makes this point. Is that it can be a great way to introduce people to something in Elixir and teach them because you can create your own custom smart cells. So then you can also walk them through what the actual code looks like.
1: <laughs> there's a there was a lot in there. I and my first my first reaction is like, oh wow, this this is not like some you know, some person's side time where they just kind of put in a little bit here and there and that's, you know, and, and it works and we're done. No, like this is like a product, you know, they're owning this like a product. And I mean, just judging by like the the, the announcements here, like you said, there's YouTube, there's the Twitter thread and, you know, obviously we're, we're the Live Book podcast, so we talk about it.
0: <laughs> and then they have the blog post, of course, on the livebook.dev website. So yeah, it really is pitched like a product. You're right
1: yeah and it's not just marketing stuff either right? it's not fluff like there's this is really cool stuff that they got going on here. The packages is really interesting when I first saw that, I thought it was just like, oh, you know hexdocs has a way to search for packages, but this is a little bit more more than that 'cause it's it integrates with the smart cells, like you mentioned. the wizard for connecting to Postgres that's pretty amazing. This is legit. you know we've talked about this before on on and i I won't go too much into it, but We've talked about this before on other episodes how we almost misuse livebook in some ways. And this is like another big part in this where I feel like it would be helpful for even folks that aren't so much into like data science or machine learning. It's just like I just want to see like well, who my top 5 users are, right? So here's my big long SQL query and now anybody, you know, is able to to run that on my my company intranet, right? Trusted environment and like chart it out. Even so, if they wanted to make a dashboard of that that data that's just in the in the database, now they can do that like super easy and come up with new queries. Yeah, this is just really amazing stuff. I'm really excited about it. I remember building a block editor. So like, a, think of a CMS, and you know the CMS has ways to add like a a, a section of text, a paragraph. Here's an image carousel, and then here's a another thing like a custom thing that you want to like link into some other, you know, part of the page. It feels like we're we're moving into that territory, you know, a bit here, where this kind of like an internal CMS almost, right? I mean, it's not there yet. It, obviously not intended to be, but it's a block editor. And now we have a concept of custom components that you can add to your live books. So anyway, that's, this is really cool
0: following up on that nerves life book version 0.6 was also released so a lot of those same benefits you're going to be seeing showing up in the nerves community which i just thought was really cool too all
1: right also up stack overflow has their 2022 developer survey open they do this yearly so it's open right now uh, maybe by the time you hear this the results will be up but if you hear this immediately go to stack overflow and go fill it out this year is a little bit different for us because it features Elixir and Erlang and even Phoenix as a web framework uh, before, you know, we're considered a too small of a community, I guess, uh, to show up uh, as a choice. And so we would be a write-in, you know, option, but not this year. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we're becoming a little bit larger enough to be a radio button on a survey. <laughs> so uh, let's go represent. Let's get in that, that uh, developer survey and fill out what you, what you will.
0: Yeah, and I noticed that that's open until June first. So depending on when you hear this, you may have up to a full week to go and check that out. But yeah, so June first is the cutoff date. So if you can register and represent yourself as part of the Elixir community, we'd love to see those numbers. Next up, I noticed something pretty cool from Isaac Yonemoto. So he's very much involved with the Zig project and. He was doing something with Zig itself where they were adding a JavaScript engine to be able to run within Zig. So David, I think I saw you active on the Twitter thread interacting with Isaac about this. What what else is going on
1: here? What is this? Who knows where this will go if it goes anywhere? But all I can tell it's just it's 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 a JavaScript engine that you can execute from inside Zig. So he has a, a, a cool example on the on the Twitter threads. We'll link to that. But uh, essentially you can just open up a context to the JavaScript engine, which I think is SpiderMonkey, which is an older one. And you can just, you know, throw some JavaScript in there and get the results out all within Zig. So this isn't Zigler, right? This isn't from within Elixir, but could lead there, you know, if there's an interest maybe, or if, if Isaac is feeling funky one day and wants to, wants to do that. But I thought that was pretty pretty interesting to be able to anytime you have like interlanguage kind of integrations like this is is pretty interesting and and to to ship, you know, a javascript runtime like that <laughs> and execute it from inside another language is just pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and I was sitting there thinking like why would we do this? Like what <laughs> someone's got an idea in mind when they start off on something like that, right? And so I would love to pick Isaac's brain and see where he's thinking this could go, but David and I were just talking before the show and I was thinking what if you just wanted to create your own little lambda right where you could run your own little javascript functions from elixir so you have all the concurrency and the multiple processes from elixir and running little javascript functions that are for other libraries I don't actually know if you'd really want to do that but you know things become possible and I mean you get what do you get with that you get supervised javascript that that's
1: interesting <laughs> Yeah, we all know that JavaScript needs some supervision here. <laughs> yeah, if you if you really like their, like JavaScript's uh, date, you know, functions in there, because they're pretty extensive. I don't know what's in SpiderMonkey specifically, so maybe it's not all there. But anyway, you can do like new date and they have international, you know, formatting in there kind of built into the language, I think. And if that's your, your choice and you want to do that uh, because it's easier and consistent, you know, because maybe eventually that'll render on the uh, HTML anyway. Hey, why not? <laughs> After that, let's shift focus to another package here. This is from Wojtek Mach. He's he's working on Rec, right? And this that's a request library, HTTP request library. It looks to be he looks to be adding some pretty cool features. I don't think that they're going to be in Rec itself. I think there's going to be some packages that support Rec. But I thought it was really cool. We've got a couple of links to it uh, of him demonstrating this, but. The idea here, the, the feature here is that it looks to be adding some detection of the payload, allowing for some interesting like navigation through the payload. So for example, if it's a tar file, that's the payload, then you can navigate to a file inside of the tar file as if it were like an elixir map, right? So you you do your request, you have dot .body, and then you like open bracket and you say the file name like mix.exs. And then you have, you know, the contents of that that file right there, so you can do whatever you want. That was really interesting. Here's the other example. Maybe we can think of cool things to do with this. Another example is if if the payload is an HTML file, then you can navigate the HTML via like HTML selectors. So if you download like you know the Elixir Lane website index.html or something, and you wanted to get the H1 tag, the first H1 tag out of it, you would do the request body and then put in your CSS selector for that H1 tag. And then you just get the contents of that. I just thought this was really interesting. I hadn't seen this before. Maybe this exists in other ecosystems that I haven't seen this before. And that is like super easy. Like if he pulls that off as the screenshots indicate, That's a super cool, super easy way to like navigate, you know, content on the web, scraping, you know, whatever, or just like picking up a a random piece from, you know, a a reliable website and working in like Livebook in it, for example, right, where you might just want to like show a simple example and do it in the least amount of lines of code, right? I imagine that if I wanted to do this with Mint, that would probably be, you know, I don't know, a couple of modules there to handle this, and now it's like almost a one-liner. I think it's a two-liner here. That's it. That's crazy.
0: Oh man, I, I've just been seeing Voitech do some pretty interesting stuff. He's also it looks like he's kind of reimagining the API for the Rec library. And the sense that I got from it, just looking at it, was that it might flow better when you're thinking about using a request set up across multiple cells in a live book. And so you can do all of your config and everything up in one place, and then just be able to make subsequent calls to your request connection to a server. I think he's got a lot of interesting stuff that he's playing with. And I know we want to talk with Voitech coming up in the future sometime soon. Maybe he can share a lot of this cool insight about what's going on here. And next up, the MPEX Mountain Conference that was on May 6th is over, and the presentation videos are up. So if you recall, it was a one-day single-track conference, and so I have a link to the playlist, it's a YouTube playlist, that has seven
1: of the presentations listed there, so you can easily browse them and check them out. Since we're talking about conferences, here's some reminders of upcoming conferences. There's ElixirConf EU in London on June 9th through the 10th. So that's elixirconf.eu. Go go check that out. Uh, I believe that's a hybrid conference, so you could attend that online if you wanted to. If you're not local to the EU or London. And then there's also ElixirConf US in Colorado on August 30th through September 2nd. I think that'll be the next one that I I can go to in person. So I'm really excited about that. I'm super looking forward to Lazy River Conf there. I I totally need to get an inflatable and just float around for a bit with a margarita or something.
0: Yep, I'm looking forward to it too. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today we're being joined by our special guest, José Valim. José, welcome back.
2: Glad you be here again.
0: So this is the final episode in the five-part series that we've been doing with you, talking about the development of Elixir and the history behind that, and learning things all along the way, which has really been fun. And our previous one, part four, we covered Elixir releases 1.10, 1.11, and 1.12. And we'll put links to all the previous interviews we've had with you in those episodes in the show notes so people can check that out later. So this episode it is timed to be released to celebrate and mark off the 10-year anniversary of the Elixir language. So it's like its first public birthday. Does that line up pretty well with what you're thinking?
2: The 10 years since 0.5, the, the first public release.
0: That is very cool. 10 years, that, that really has flown. I wasn't there for the very beginning part. I didn't join in Elixir till after Dave Thomas's first Elixir book. That's the book that kind of got me in there. We have you here now. And so what you want to lay out for us what you'd like to talk about in this episode.
2: Right, so for this episode, we are going to talk about 1.13, which was the last release at the time of the recording, and then we're going to talk about the next release, which has not been released yet, but... Uh, It's going to come within a month, for example, from from recording or from when we publish it. And then we can just chat a little bit more. I assume like you've built up tons of questions uh, from the previous episodes, but we are focused. So I hope today we can go over them as well.
0: Awesome. All right. So that leads us into 1.13. It has been fun as, as these have been coming more recent. It's easier to recall some of these changes. And so this one was released in December... 2021, about six months ago.
2: Every once in a while we have like those releases that are really focused on improving the compiler and compiler tooling, like every three and four releases. 1.13 was definitely another one of those. So the big feature that we had here is something that we were calling semantic recompilation. And the idea behind symmetric compilation, it's really a bunch of changes where we're trying to make the compiler understand a little bit more about the code and relationship between dependencies, between configuration files. So we trigger recompilations less frequently. So for example, before dot thirteen, every time you changed a config file, for example, it would recompile the whole project. And this could lead to like weird between quotes like scenarios for example like quickly switching between branches but like git may touch the configuration file and that would cause a full recompilation even if no configuration change for example so we did a bunch of improvements and then some are more mechanical like so for example before if we change an elixir file we would recompile it but now we check the digest of the file, we check the size. If the size changed, for sure, the file change. But if the size did not change, then we say, hey, do the digest actually changed or not? And by doing those things, we avoid recompilation in a bunch of other scenarios. So go a little bit more structured on those changes. So we now compute like the digest of files to avoid recompilations before changing mix Access would trigger for recompilation. But now we check what are the options that you change the mix Access and if changing those options should cause for recompilation. Changing compile time configuration. Now we we look which configuration are you changing? Is this about the current project or is this about a dependency? So now instead of recompiling everything, we are going to see Look, so only the modules that call that dependency or that call a dependency, that call that dependency, there's always that, right? So we generally became smarter about like those relationships, fewer recompilations. In a bunch of scenarios, we would like trigger for recompilations. And now it's just like, for example, well, we are only going to trigger for compilation if you change certain options in XXS. We are go- only going to trigger for recompilation if you change your own application in the config file. So it reduced the scope considerably. So I want
1: to dig into that. Like, what does that practically mean? So I'm, I'm thinking that when I'm in config.exs, and maybe I have I don't know, Ecto in my project, sometimes I would be configuring Ecto itself, maybe. So the first key would be, you know, colon Ecto. And is it that first key there that the recompilation? Yeah. Okay. So it's the first one. So my so in my application, it would be, you know, my my app would be the first key. And that's the key that, you know, to recompile for the stuff in my project. Okay. Gotcha. So that's what that means.
2: We know the application and then we know everything that depends in that application and we know all the modules of those applications and all the modules that depend on those applications. And because we have all this information and then we know which modules your application is calling, we can kind of figure everything out and know what to recompile. And what is really interesting about this is that a lot of those changes, we could have done this like three years ago, but. Sometimes, like, it's not necessarily a, a technical problem that we don't know the solution to. It's just like you are slowly, like, being nudged into directions that make you realize, wait, we could do all of those things and improve the experience. I did this disclaimer at the time. I'm going to do it again. So for people because it's fairly new, right? For people who are migrating to 1.13, if you run into any weird scenarios, like look, I'm recompiling from scratch and that's giving me a different result than when when I change the project myself, please open up an issue. I feel like we ironed out all of those, but depending on the project, a specific issue may be triggered. But yeah, it was uh, like making the compiler smarter like that. It was a big conceptual change. I don't think it was like technically very complicated, but conceptually it was a big one. A lot of the changes, there were also contributions for the community, especially Mark Andrea, who was also on the show, I think, talking about some of those changes. So it was really cool. And related to this, I'm just jumping ahead here, the other, we also made a lot of improvements to MixxRef, which is the tool that helps you understand your code base and how the things relate. Because every time it's like this, like somebody comes with a like, oh, compilation is slow. And then I'm going to talk to them like, Hey, how can we improve this? How we can change things? I'm asking them to run some commands. And every time I get out of a session like this, I'm thinking like, Hey, how can I make this easier next time? either so I can give them a command to run and I get all the feedback I need or so they can debug the problem themselves and they don't need to reach out to me. And there were many improvements to XREF, but the biggest one by far was that we added mix XREF trace and you give the path to a file in lib, for example. And we are going to execute that file. We're going to compile that file and we are going to tell you like, hey, this line has a compile time dependence on this. This line has a runtime dependency on this. So it really breaks everything down. So you can kind of know where your compile time dependencies are coming from. And this is really, really neat.
1: If I remember right, I think this also had something to do with like transitive dependencies too, and finding that tree more accurately. And I think Marc-Andre also had a lot to do with that. Am I recalling correctly?
2: Yeah. So one of the things that it's is the tricky part in compilation is like you start having transitive dependencies. And one of the other change we got to XRF, which we are referring to, is when you accidentally get those transitive dependencies. So uh, Marc-André, he contributed flags to make it easy to find those as well. Uh, But it's always the thing, like you say, look, this thing has a transitive dependency on these, And then they are like, okay, but where is it? I have a file. It has like 300 lines of code. Where in that file is it? (laughs) And the trace helps you find it.
0: That's interesting because it's, Features like that that I haven't had to reach for for a long time, just because I have not noticed compile slowness that's been impacting me. So things have gotten so good to the point where, at least with the projects that I work on, I'm not seeing that pain point, which I think is just, it's great. But I, I think it's good that we know about this as a diagnostic tool. To help out like sometimes we might be jumping into a new project helping out like especially as a consultant with you jose helping out with other teams they're asking you to come into an existing large project so having these kinds of tools on hand would be super helpful
2: yeah, what happens a lot as well is that we are working on those tools and then like people are running those tools in their projects. And then they realize that sometimes those dependencies, they are coming from Plug, they are coming from Phoenix, they're coming from Acto, they're coming from GraphQL, and then we solve those upstreams. So a lot of times you're, you're like, the fact that you are on latest Phoenix, for example, means that you got some of those improvements. And you are enjoying faster compilation time. So when your project grows, the thing that was a bottleneck for people in the past, they are no longer a bottleneck anymore because they were fixed at the root, right? So the problem is gone. And so you're not running into this. I
1: remember one of those flags. You'll see it in in the diff. If you run the generator for a new Phoenix project, you'll see a, a difference there. Uh, one of them is, is plug init mode or something along those lines, and it and it can switch between runtime versus compile time. And so that was something I think that was causing a lot of people's projects, like just recompiling all the time when it really wasn't needed to. And so in development and maybe in test mode, I think now runs in default to be runtime mode instead of compile time. So to avoid all those recompilings you know, happening needlessly, maybe.
2: Yeah. And one of the things cool about Trace is that it helped people find those because they would run it in their router or in their Phoenix endpoint. And they were like, hey, there's a compile time dependency here. And then they would open up an issue and then we could fix it. So I think the tracing functionality, it's a really nice addition to the general tools that we have, and it's going to, to help improve everything.
1: So the next features in 1.13 that I remember are like things that I saw in the editor that helps make things, you know, uh, uh, easier. The developer experience, the DX here got better in 1.13. And there's two parts, code formatting plugins. And I think we're starting to see like the the introduction of like, you know, the, the, the example in the changelog for 1.13 introduces like, what if you could format your markdown in your docs you know through an external plugin or more relevant now that i'm using is the heeks formatter which came you know a little later after this release so all of your heeks templates can be formatted now too through this this new feature this this code formatting plugin and so so there's that one which we we can come back to that but the other part of this was while you're editing you maybe um you have some code completion that's occurring and there's better auto completion now that can happen because you might be in the middle of a sentence or middle of a of a module or you haven't gotten there yet and and things wouldn't be able to autocomplete before and now it's a little bit more intelligent about that. So tell me about that one first. But tell me about code.fragment because I don't I don't understand how this works. Tell me how that that part works. How did we get better auto complete?
2: We always had like so for example a compiler in a language only needs to worry about complete code. Right. So for example, if I write like one plus in my function and then I try to compile it, the compiler is going to be like, hey, I can't parse this. I'm not going to compile it. But a code, a ID, a code editor. So a lot of those features, they were driven because we were working on Livebook. So we, we wanted to add those features to Livebook. And uh, Marlos Saraiva, he was still with us at Dashbit. And he was like, hey, I implemented those features in Elixir Sense. And then we were like, well, maybe instead of like implementing everything again, let's... And he was like, oh, and Marlos would say like, and this is so complicated because we are using private APIs. So sometimes those things change between Elixir versions and then we have to fix it. And I was like, okay, let's solve this problem in Elixir because... There is also an autocomplete implement- implementation in IX. So like the joke I was telling at the time is that there were three people at the same company, Dashbit. So it was me for IX, Marius for Elixir Sense and the, and the language server. And now Jonathan for Livebook. They were kind of implementing the same functionality in different places. They were like, okay, enough is enough. And because we have this in iX and it feels such an important part of the language, we want to solve it at the language at the language level. So we introduce this module called Code and the idea is that Code frog- Fragment has functions to work on pieces of code, on fragments of code, where, you know, the syntax may not be valid. I can, I can like open up a do, but never write the end. So we, we want to do this stuff. So we added like a functionality for that. And as a consequence of this, so the, on, the only tool that is part of Elixir itself that that has auto-completion is IX. So as an example of using those tools, like in Elixir 1.13, we got sigils uh, auto-completion in Ix. we got structs auto-completion. Now, we, you know, if you have a struct and you type dot and you hit tab, we are going to show the fields on that struct. So we're able to, to improve the core and from that core, improve the tools. And then this is already being used in Livebook, but the hope is that this eventually is going to make its way all the way up, like to, to Elixir cells, to the language server and so on. So that was one of the, the changes that we were talking about. And the other one, code formatting plugins, I think you already covered it pretty well. Uh, we want to allow people to format like sigils, for example, like Markdown, Higgs templates. So we added the ability to both format like the contents of sigils in the Elixir formatter. But since we already like, hey, we're, we're already formatting, formatting like a, a, a HICS, an HTML EX CGU, I may as well format those files as well. So we, we added support in general for like code formatting plugins, So we can format additional files. We can format sigils, and provide like this unified experience where somebody's working on a Phoenix application and everything is formatted. Their Elixir code, we already talked about the formatter in other episodes and, you know, the benefits. So imagine getting that for everything, for your templates, for your, your Elixir code. It's just glorious.
1: I'm glad that it's say plug-in that, that's so easy to get in there. I recently upgraded one of my personal projects. I put the plug-in there like instantly, and I was just like, mixed format, mixed format. And it, it was giving me some weird errors, and then I realized that it needed 1.13. So I upgraded Elixir to 1.13, and it worked beautifully. But I was like, ah, oh, thank you. Like My <laughs> HTML now looks... I don't have to worry about my HTML. And that's particularly problematic for folks that use Tailwind, like me, because your classes are so long <laughs> and all in your HTML. So I was like, it was just a lot a lot of stuff in there so just having a formatter was very relieving <laughs> to have in there so you, you mentioned sigils so it's easy to know like if you use e that's eex if you use h that's Heeks. l for live eex but doc tests or docs rather i don't really use sigils there but it's kind of understood to be markdown is that a hard rule
2: it's not really a hard a hard rule, or maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, xdocs is definitely going to assume that it's Markdown.
1: Yeah.
2: The documentation is not using a sigil, so we there is no way at the moment to automatically format Markdown. That's not something that we can do you would need to add, you know, like tilde m sigil, on top of your docs as just as a way to say like, hey, this is markdown. So you can have something coming in and and formatting it.
1: But maybe de facto because of doc it's <laughs> doc tests or doc docs rather.
2: Yeah, I don't know if there's anything in Elixir like hard coding it, but like the general understanding of everything, like of IDEs, xdoc is that it is markdown, right? So...
0: Yeah, and similarly, in your xdoc at doc section on when you're writing that, that if you indent four spaces, it's
1: assumed it's Elixir code.
2: Yeah, which is markdown, yeah. It's four spaces, for code, yeah.
1: Well, well that, that also assumes that it's Elixir code, not just any code, right?
2: Yeah, and, and that's an xdoc assumption as well, which is pretty reasonable, but yeah.
1: Actually, to be more concise, it probably, it probably assumes it to be IEX Uh, elixir not just regular elixir right because i think you can put in uh console stuff in there too
2: yeah the 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 tool that we use makeup for the syntax highlighting it actually doesn't have something for iex it just it just takes everything and then if it starts with the iex prompt it says oh it's an iex prompt and automatically handles it which i think it's it's great there is no point of like you know no one should be like reviewing a pull request, say, hey, you have to write this to Elixir, from Elixir to IX or something like that.
1: There was
0: another part of the code formatting that was updated in 1.13. It was this idea of extended code formatting.
2: I believe that we were also, there were other improvements to the formatter. And that's why we, and we said, like, there are a bunch of general extensions. So besides plugins, you know, I said like in 1.6, we, we added the formatter and then we have been like slowly exposing some of the APIs functionality that uh, that we had. And in 1.13, we kind of finished this, this journey to allow you to give any Elixir AST and format it through the formatter. I believe there was also an episode. This was the work I believe Lucas did. And then he also released like a sorcerer library, which is a library for like doing a source code manipulation with Elixir. So that's part of the features that came with the formatting as well in this release. There are two other features in here that they are small, but I, I wanted to discuss them very briefly. So one is that we finally have the power operator, which is like asterisk, asterisk. It only took us almost 10 years to get it. And the other feature that we got is that you can do now a import a module. And before the the only option, when you specify the functions you want to import, before you could do only functions and only macros. And we added in this version only sigils, so you can import only the sigils of this module. And both of those changes, they were motivated by an X. Because with the next, our goal is like to bring Elixir to, you know, new domains, new areas, and probably like new professionals, new developers, new enthusiasts that uh, are not using Elixir for what we generally use to like for web or embedded or data processing. And then we are constantly thinking like, because, you know, if you have, if you need like exponentiation, right, Uh, if you need power in your applications, then we would call like math.power, right? Then we would be like, okay, this is fine. Like, it's not going to be like such a such a big thing. But now like, hey, we want to do numerical computing. And then they're like, how do I do power or exponentiation? They're like, well, you know, just go do this. Like, go just type the whole thing. People are like, why don't you have an operator? And even more important was the deciduous stuff. In NX, we have like sigils for defining vectors and matrix, but we don't want to tell people like to import all the NX module only for two sigils. And what you can do is that you could say import only, and then you could type like sigil underscore M, which is the name of the sigil and pass a arity of two and that's how when we want only the sigil of something that's how we have been doing those things historically but i was like this is nonsense like you know like this looks like a magical incantation that we all have been like we understand how things work and we don't use sigils that much so we're like okay this is fine but now we're like telling people like hey you know if you want to write a matrix using this special, super nice notation, you have to put like this import and X, comma, only column, open bracket, schedule, <laughs> underscore M, column, true, close bracket. It's like, that's too much, right? <laughs> or like, we need to make this experience a little bit better. So it's funny. Again, small features, but really driven by like, it's moving a part of the experience that would have been fine for us. But I think when we want to onboard new people and those are the first things they are running into, we want to definitely make that cleaner, definitely cleaner.
0: Wait, so is that how you talk to the computer when you're trying to... <laughs> is
2: that is that why you get the errors you're getting? Yeah, th- that's why Like, they are just a parenthesis here. If you actually use dictation for programming, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> I don't think it gets open bracket. Colin definitely gets... <laughs> But yeah, it's not going to get the casing right, for example, right? You're going to say like import and X is going to be everything is going to be lowercase, right? So uh, there is a cool software, uh, which is open source called Talon, which is meant to add like dictation for programmers. So it understands like commands when you say like camel okay, case, up and this kind of things and punctuation and so on. But yeah, that would be, that was my dramatic interpretation of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Colin, yeah. open paren. <laughs> Speaking
1: of um, making things fast or, or better for you know new developers onboarding onto a project, there's a new mixed test thing, right? Because one of the first things that new developers might be going into a project will do, will try to do, is run the tests for your project to prove that everything's compiling, everything's working, you got all your, your ducks in a row. Is there a new flag that came with mixed tests to, to figure out timing? What was what was the deal there?
2: Yeah, so this one, I expect n- new developers to not need it. So somebody was saying their test suite so was slow, and then it was a slow to start or something like that. I don't remember the details, but again, going through that process of helping that person figure out why it's slow, I was like, wait, is it slow to load the tests or is it slow for running the tests, right? Where is it? So I added this feature you can say profile require time. And that is basically benchmarking the time to require your test files, but without running all of them. So with these, you can kind of, you can get like an idea of how long does it take to only load your test files, which is something that you're going to need only when your project gets super big, but it can help find like inefficiencies around this area. So I'm curious, do you remember if that actually found the problem? (laughs) I don't remember. I don't remember. That's pretty
1: interesting though. Yeah. Cause like understanding how mix or X unit runs tests, that's been like a kind of a mind, you know, opener for me, like just, just to understand how that works. It's a little bit closer to like running an EXS file where things are compiled kind of like on demand and like th- different th- tasks that are opening to run these tests and how tests are understood to the system and tracked over, over you know, the lifetime of them running. That was a good learning experience. I, I guess I, sh- I shouldn't suggest this for new developers, but I thought that, you know, if you can understand how XUnit works, that's going to be a lot of like the good things about Elixir because like a lot of really cool Elixir features are used in X Unit, I felt anyway, pretty cool. Like, yeah, because you like you said, like just to require the files. That's not like in my mind. I still separate compile time, runtime. But in X Unit, those are happening at the same time. They're not separate phases necessarily. In a, in a, like a, in a project that are, compiles an artifact and then you run the artifact separately. These are happening at the same time.
2: Yeah, so let's start a new segment of the show, which is how XUnit works in one minute. <laughs> <laughs> one minute. <laughs> yeah, it basically, there are three things involved. So there is a server and there is a runner and there are the formatters. So what we do is that we start those three things and then we go and we require the files. We literally, like, execute the contents of your test files. And when that module, your XUnit case is loaded, we send it to the server. We are sending everything to the server and the runner is picking the, the, them up. First, all the asynchronous one that can run the synchronous. So as soon as that module is loaded, it goes to the server, the, server, the runner is available, uh, picks it up and asks it to run the tests. And it runs the tests and sends the results to the formatter. And that's how XUnit works in a minute segment.
1: Wow. Ah, you got it. I was really hoping you'd go over a minute. <laughs> but you got it. That's really cool. Yeah. Thanks for going through that. Maybe last thing on 1.13, and then we can talk about the future a bit, because I see I see this in a lot of projects when I'm upgrading, you know, my my projects. Mix config. Mix.config. We we talked a little bit about this back in 1.9, but mix.config officially deprecated in favor of the new one. Fig. And this was to help support releases and runtime configuration uh, a little bit better, if, if I'm recalling correctly.
2: Yeah, so config in 1.9 was no longer part of, like, a configuration is no longer part of only mix. It's a thing that you want to do in a release where mix is no longer available. So we introduced the config module to kind of host everything. And with this, mix config is, you know, it's deprecated. Gone. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I bring it up because when you upgrade to one point thirteen, you're in, and you haven't already done that. Fully moved over into the config module, uh, you're going to see a lot of warnings, and perhaps if you have dependencies that are still using mixed config, you might see their warnings too when things compile. That's okay.
2: Actually, the beautiful thing about configurations is that they are always per project. When you compile Phoenix, the configurations for the Phoenix project, they actually do not apply to your project. They are always per project which means that you're only going to see the deprecations for the config in your project. Oh, clever. So you're not going to see a lot of them uh, because of how they work, because you don't want like, you don't want something that Phoenix defined to affect everything globally. That's why it was designed like this. But if you started like an umbrella project some time ago, because way back then, like we would say that umbrellas, each thing in an umbrella would have a configuration file. And just, I think like three or four years ago, we, unify to like a single configuration file at the root. But, you know, depending on the project, you can get uh, a reasonable good amount of warnings, but it should be mostly straightforward migration. I hope is like use mix config, import mix config, and you should be, yeah, mostly done, I hope.
0: So I think the last thing to call out on 1.13 is that since the release, the original initial release of 1.13, there've been four point releases. And we don't have to go through all the details of each of those. To me, it's just like a reminder that, yes, these things, you know, we've been talking about these releases, but it's, it's kind of like not done. It continues. Like the work is still going on, on just the maintenance of those releases. And typically the main things that are brought in are bug fixes. Is there anything else that you can talk about? Like what do you think is worth putting into a point release?
2: Yeah, it's generally bug fixes and most of the times are bug fixes to new features like the huge majority of the time. So for example, uh 1.13.4 and I think most of like the bug fixes, they had improvements to to sometimes not even a bug fix but like a, something that was missing that was very important for that functionality to work. So, for example, uh, we were talking about the code plugins, right? The code formatter plugins. And as people were implementing those plugins, they were like, hey, I need this information. Without this information, I'm formatting the user code in a not optimal way we're doing those changes to, to fix those things. So for example, if you want to use the Higgs formatter in live view, they recommend 1.13.4, which was the last release to get the best experience because otherwise it's going to add a new line. If you are using an inline sigil or something like that. So there are like some small cases that those patch releases help address.
0: It's a, a reminder for all of us to just try and stay up on the latest point releases as as they come out. So now I'm excited to maybe look at 1.14, which has not been released yet. And you were mentioning up at the top of the show that this might be in, you know, two to four weeks, depending on when that's ready and along with the release of this episode. So what are some of the things that we can look forward to in 1.14?
2: The biggest ones are, we have now a new supervisor module called Partition Supervisor. And the idea of a Partition Supervisor is that if you have a process and that process like perfectly partitionable, like you can like create instances of them to like distribute the work and they don't need to communicate with each other. The Partition Supervisor is a very easy way of doing this. So for example, a very common usage where you can think is like, for example, if I have a task supervisor in your application, that that task supervisor may become a bottleneck because it's still a single process that has to start a bunch of tasks. So if the partition supervisor, and I've been to applications, like working with clients, so and I was like, oh, maybe the bottleneck can be here. You can easily address this. And then I would like write like 30, 40 lines of code with the supervisor thing. And I think I wrote like this... 34 lines of code at this point, like, you know, seven, eight times. So I was like, okay, enough is enough. So we decided to add the partition supervisor to Elixir because I think it's very important. I mean, one of the questions that people can ask, right, is like, well, like, couldn't it be a package? And that's what I would ask if somebody proposed the mailing list, right? Like, couldn't it be a package? Because Elixir is not using the partition supervisor. Maybe, or maybe it is. Maybe we started using it in some places. But... We, we are not using the, the partition supervisor, so we don't need it in core and it could be done as a package. But I think like fortless concurrency is such a very basic premise of the language and of the platform that we should make like fortless concurrency for a task supervisor. So now it's a single line of code. The examples of partition supervisor show exactly how to do that. You just say, hey, it's a partition supervisor. Here's the work I'm actually going to start. And so I'm really excited to 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 see this being used more and more and allowing, you know, applications to, Fortlessly start like partitioning stuff
1: so i heard you say this is the eighth time you've written it so it's time to refactor it and before earlier you said that uh you know three folks at at dashbit were all writing autocomplete stuff so the third time (laughs) we've had enough we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna fix it so i think we're learning at least three times at most eight times to uh rewrite something before you propose it to to
2: (laughs) to elixir (laughs) it depends on the size because the partition is like 30, 40 lines of code, so you're like, okay, yeah. But the the code completion, we are talking about hundreds of lines of code, so, you know.
1: Yeah, okay. (laughs) So it's as painful as that is. Let's get that in uh, Elixir.
2: Yes, yes.
1: So I'm curious, is some of this experience from partition supervisor coming out of your experience with Flow?
2: It's just everywhere, honestly. Like, we we use it in Phoenix. I don't think we use it in Flow because Flow requires port... It's like, it's not that straightforward partitioning. But for example, like, in Phoenix, we have, like, the channel supervisor. So we have an implementation of partition supervisor in there. I mean, I don't think HTTP clients, they're going to use it. But if you have an HTTP client, you know, you may want to do, like, this this kind of partition supervising and then like kind of round robbing or randomly sending things. So there are a bunch of use cases. And that's why I said, like I've implemented so many times, sometimes like telling people how to do it. I I don't think I recall like particular examples, maybe because it was so many times.
0: Another thing that I think is coming up in 1.14, recently we were talking about some of the improvements of OTP 25. And one of the things that came out from one of our previous discussions with you was the improved errors on binaries. So is that going to be landing in 1.14? OTP
2: 24 introduced the Erlang Enhancement Proposal 54, which was about extended error information coming from Erlang, which did the general like improvement to error messages in Erlang. Fantastic work. And then one part was missing, which was binaries. I opened up an issue. The OTP team agreed that should be improved. and They did a fantastic work of improving the binary error messages. They are really, really great. I'm really looking forward to people to like trying this out and going from experience where before, like you would do the concatenation between like an integer and a binary and it would say bad badarg. And now it's going to say, look, the first part of our binary here is not the type that it was expecting. Really great error messages. And in order to fully use it, you need 1.14 because just to improve a little bit the experience. So in EP- EP54, they added uh, new fields to help like the formatting of the binaries. So we are now passing this information to our link when it needs to build the error message long story short, yes, uh, we are getting those improvements in 1.14. And the other thing that we improved, this is, was a pull request that I sent to OTP, is to improve the error messages in evaluation as well. And this means better error messages in IX and better error messages in live book. So again, another small change that I'm really excited about, and I think is going to be like A big difference to like, you know, just the experience, like making everything like feel great and shiny.
0: I think that does come back to helping people who are coming new to the language, especially having better error messages. Cause that's one of the things that was awesome about Elixir, you know, when I first came to it a long time ago, which was just that the error messages were really quite good already at that time. And now they've just gotten better and better since then. Cause I was trying to imagine where are people going to see this binary error? problem. And you mentioned like this idea that if I'm concatenating an integer with a string or something like that, I'm like building my own output. Like, is that where people are mostly going to see that?
2: Building binaries by hand and binary concatenation. Those are the, the two main scenarios where you're going to see this.
0: What's another thing that we could look forward to?
2: Next one is that I don't remember. I think it was 1.12. We talk about that we introduced steps to ranges. We had some issues with ranges like we could not have an empty range, which was problematic. So we added steps to solve this, which also added the ability of us to say, look, I want the range from one to nine in steps of two. So that would be one, three, five, seven, nine. And uh, 1.14 is continuing this work. But when we added this, we went to a bunch of Elixir APIs that accepted ranges and said, look, if the step is not one, we are going to raise. we start removing some of those raises and implementing the functionality. So now, for example, I can go to a string slice and say, for example, I want a string from zero, the first character to minus one, which would be the end of the string, but in steps of two. And what that is going to do is that it's going to get like the first character, the third character, the fifth character, and so on. So we are considering the steps in a bunch of the operations in the standard library. And we even added two new functions to kernel because we can slice strings and slice strings considers the graphemes all Unicode. But sometimes you just want a binary, a raw binary. I want to slice the bytes. So we also added a binary slice for slicing binaries and so on. So we're improving like the integration between like slicing things and ranges.
0: That's really interesting. I'm trying to think of situations where I might actually see that. And I, nothing's coming to mind at the moment, but uh, it, it's one of those things like it's neat to see that the improvement to steps like stepped ranges, because ranges can be passed to so many other things, how that just kind of flows through the rest of the standard library. And I don't think we as normal users of Elixir appreciate that a change like to a stepped range can have such a large impact to so many other functions. So that's just a good thing to be aware of.
2: Yeah. And and this, again, it's one of the features that are coming based on NX. So, you know, when you're working with matrices, tensors, it's quite more common to want to slice them in very particular and specific ways. And people who are coming from Python, Julia, MATLAB, they are all used with, you know, like with those affordances. So that was one of the the motivation of it. And I think I think what makes it really clear is that like nobody asked for this before. Right. And the fact that we're adding those features now, those requests come all the time. It just shows like there's really things in there that depending on the kind of applications they're going to build, it's rarely going to like to come up. And that's fine.
1: I noticed one
0: thing in the in the changelog when I was reviewing it for one fourteen with the multi-line Ex comments that really warmed my heart. I guess you could say because I feel like I'm constantly like commenting things out, and then just like it's it's the multi-line thing never made sense to me. So where did that come from?
2: It's hard to explain. I think through audio, but the need for it is that the previous way we could like put comments in ex templates, you could not comment an ex template itself because when we'd comment like a ex snippet it would cancel the comment. The way we would do comments, it's really hard to explain, but it basically means like, imagine you had a template and you would you wanted to comment a large chunk of it and you would hit like something in your, in your editor, like comment all those lines. It basically, it would not work because the the thing that we use to, to delimitate the comments is the same thing that we use to delimitate EX. So it would get confused when which one starts and the other one finishes. And then we had to address this problem and we added a multi-line comment syntax. And, you know, so it was a common problem coming, becoming especially more common now with HICs and driving people more towards like this kind of stuff. So we introduced this feature to address this very specific problem. Yeah.
1: That's all all there is to it. Yeah. So, yeah, before it was just, uh, you know, open bracket percent pound or hash i I don't know what regions need what word there but it's that hash sign (laughs) and then that would be the comment so everything inside of there would just be ignored i guess but um, like you said there was problems with that so now it's going to be angle bracket percent bang exclamation point whatever dash dash kind of like more like a like an html comment but with the percent in there now could you maybe read these more dramatically yeah 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 yeah. left angle percent (laughs) bang dash dash and then stuff (laughs) and then you end it with dash dash percent uh right angle and so yeah, I guess that's the cool thing is that it's it's now actually really multi-line. I have to admit, I was a little confused because I saw this in Tree Sitter. Uh, in the Heeks stuff, I was looking through it to see like, how does it handle, you know, commenting? I, f- I remember seeing something that was not quite highlighted, right, it's probably just my config, but I remember investigating in the TreeSitter parser and I was like, what is this? I don't remember this, this is new syntax to me. So I found it through that. And then I I, tr- I didn't realize that it hadn't even been released yet. Wow, they're ahead <laughs> of the game, huh? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, they're prepared. <laughs> yeah, no, the the TreeSitter folks, they are checking what has happened. They're like, oh, you're going to update the Traceeator grammar, which is really cool because it means that, you know, when the new version comes out, like GitHub, we already know how to syntax highlight it. So it's pretty nice the work that the Traceeator team for Elixir and getting help from people from GitHub to The work they're doing is really, is really nice, really amazing. And to last thing I want to talk about 1.14. So I think 1.14 overall is going to be one of those more like very... Playing releases, not a lot of exciting things happening. One of the things that we changed, this is a small change, but one of the things that we changed in 1.4 team is that we are now doing expression-based inspection. So I'm going to give a shout-out to, 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 to Wojtek. Uh, Ma works with me because it feels like every two other months, he's like, let's talk about that problem. <laughs> and the problem is, if you're using like the decimal library, it's going to be printed in, in, like inspected in the terminal, for example, yeah, her messages as like hash pound, right, decimal, and then left angle, and then the contents of the decimal. So we had like this special inspect representation that we would use for decimal, we would use for version, we would use in a bunch of different scenarios.
1: Probably use it a lot in NX too, yeah.
2: Yes, yeah. And now with uh, this new, what we are doing with Elixir 1.14 is that in a bunch of those examples, we are going to actually print it as the expression. So decimal is going to be printed as decimal.new, open parenthesis, and then the string of the decimal. So it can actually copy and paste that into your code, and it's going to work. So we are giving it a try to collect feedback. Somebody pointed out later on that that's what Python does, for example. What we were doing before, it was much more of like a Ruby kind of thing of doing things. And somebody pointed out, hey, that's actually how Python does it. So the idea is to improve the com- compatibility and allow some values to we be able to copy and paste the thing into the code and have it work. We tried to solve this problem in a bunch of other ways. Like we discussed like multi-letter sigils. We discussed adding other kinds of modifiers like constructors for data types. We really discussed like another approaches to this and, and different ways. And we couldn't come up with something that we felt was like, really satisfactory, you know, like we would come up with something more like, let's say, engineered, but it was like, well, is it really worth introducing another abstraction to the language because of this? And what is going to the confusion that it can potentially introduce? So we're like, you know what, there is a solution that is very easy for us to try and see how it feels, which is to have expression-based inspection. And that's a change, and uh, I think that's more already changed. So it try it out. So if you have a library where expect, uh, where you're expecting things that are small, like versions, that's small. There are other use cases in Elixir give it a try to the expression-based thing. And if it works, then that's great. And then there are things that's not going to work. Like a tensor is too large to try this approach, but I think it can be useful in a bunch of different scenarios. So but like we have a money library, maybe the money library can start using the shoe. This is one of the things that I'm a little bit anxious to, positively anxious, looking forward to see how it's going to pan out and the feedback we're going to get from the community.
0: One question I have just kind of in, in thinking of this whole 10-year experience of yours, like when you started on this journey, this was the grand vision, right? You, you've actually lived it, right? Like this is, this is all planned. Everything went just to how you thought it would go, right? This whole 10 years of this experience.
2: I always say that I don't really plan this stuff. So maybe it was according to the plan because if we don't have a plan, It all goes according to it, right? (laughs) There is a vision, there is a decision process. There are, let's say, rules, right? Like guidelines of how we change the language. But there's no plan. A lot of it's based on on feedback. So, you know, it's kind of like none of this was expected and all of this was expected, uh, which is very interesting.
0: Another way I might ask this question is when you set out on this journey of creating a new language, from my perspective, as someone who had heard of Jose Valim in the Ruby community, and then later hear about Elixir, and I didn't even connect the two at the time, the community has gotten so large and so many people have gotten involved. You have so many contributors. And just what has that been like from that perspective of seeing this grow as, as a movement?
2: Like you do a small contribution, right? Like I started Elixir and then it's always so great, like to be surprised people like getting it and building all those kinds of, of amazing things and contributing. I'm still like frequently surprised with like ideas and how people like approach some problems and uh, the, some of the other problems that they are using to uh, Elixir to, to address. It's hard for me to describe, but one of the ways is like, I also think about it. Elixir is like the biggest project I have ever worked like it's I'm working on the same project for ten years, and I'm still really excited about it. So uh, I think that's like a, a a good sign. And that motivation, a lot of it, it comes from external, right? It's not like intrinsic motivation. I do like one hour meditation. I should stay motivated. No, it's like it's really <laughs> driven by the by the community and all those intera- iterations and feedback that that we get. So.
0: Well, you mentioned there like the idea of being surprised. So we just had in episode 98, we talked with Dominic Letts and I was surprised that they had got an Elixir application deployed to the iOS app store and the Google Play app store where the application is written in Elixir running on the mobile device and is running a, a live view application. Yeah. And I was like, that is, that surprises me. Like that must be surprising for you too. I was like that someone would even try that.
2: Yeah, totally. Totally. I still, I, for example, like even on today's episode, like when we got to Cemetery Compilation, it was like for, for contributions from Marc Andre, and he, he was, he helped like shine a light on, on this problem from a different angle. And, and that was like, I got surprised there and excited. And then the other thing we mentioned today was Lucas, you know, with the Sorcerer library, like when I thought about this, you know, I was like, well, can we do source code modification? Every time I would think about it, it was like, oh, it feels so far away, but you know, somebody came, he's like, I'm working on this library to make this library work. I only need those two functions. You know, and then we add those things and it happens. Those are all like surprise. I still say like nerves, still is, and probably will ever be my biggest surprise, right? So <laughs> uh, those are the surprises. And for me, it's it's always like, it's always like very exciting. We've spent you know,
1: five episodes looking at the past and, you know, there's lots of things that have happened, you know, through it. We went through all the point versions and you know, 1.0 all the way up there, 1.1 all the way up to 1.14, 14, right? Right. Uh, which is in the near about to be passed, you know, and I know that a lot of different things happened during, during all those, you know, the, those point releases, we, we didn't really talk about Phoenix, but Phoenix, you know, had a, a huge, huge presence there. Uh, Ecto obviously has a huge presence there and we didn't focus a whole lot on there, but
2: we focus on Elixir, but not the ecosystem. Right. So, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And and I, and I know that that could be like a whole nother series or podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's what we do. Right. We talk to everybody that's, that's writing stuff in the ecosystem, but you know, for you particularly, you know, I, I I remember platform attack. I remember, Dashbit, you know, and Dashbit's still still going here. Like, you've had a lot of personal journeys here, you know, as well. You, you have any highlights there about Dashbit, like what you're currently working on?
2: Let me just give a little bit of context. Elixir was created inside a company called Platform Formatech. It was a consultancy in Brazil. And about like 2018, we started a kernel inside Plata Attack that would become Dashbit because Plata Attack was acquired. And then I was like, okay, we are going to get this kernel that was really focused around open source and start Dashbit. And at the time it was Wojtek, Marlus and myself. And so we started Dashbit, I think it was at the beginning of 2020, I think. Yeah. We're kind of, yeah, it feels, feels about right. We started already running, you know, because we we just extracted something that was fully working inside Platform Attack. And we just say, hey, we are calling this dash bit now. And what we do a dash bit is that we have one service, which is called the Alexa Development Subscription. And that's a contact line between... The Dash B team, the three of us. So Marlos left later, and now Philip, he was on the show recently talking about what's pre compiled. And so we have like, uh, is it is direct contact between your engineering team and the Dash B team, where you can help you with code reviews, architectural discussions. And this kind of stuff. And the goal of Dashbit is to work with a limited and selected amount of clients so we can get experience from how people are running like Elixir at scale, in production, under different scenarios. So we get a lot of this feedback. And to use that work with the clients is to empower the rest of our open source work. So Dashbit was definitely like starting Dashbit was you know, was definitely a change, and I'm really happy of being able to put this vision on the website and and and, and so clearly I remember people at the time, the, the you know the international community they were pretty cool with it when when it was announced that platform attack was being acquired. Everything was like kind of like oh it's all right everything you know there was not a lot of panic let's say but like the community in Brazil they were like a little bit like you know what is happening but then we announced that should be it and being able to put the vision of the company that is really about open source uh it's something that we we were really happy with and today we are at a position so let me just give a quick a rundown we are nine or ten but the team of like that is working i'm going to use the word consultant but i don't think i are really really consultant but the team that is working with the clients is still Wojtek, philip and myself And then we have four people full-time on open source, and we have three other people who are like collaborators, contributors at different capacity. Like, so some people work like kind of like two days a week on some select projects. The others, like they just produce some material from time to time. So it kind of varies. I was really excited when we we went to a point where we have like more people doing full-time open source than consultants at the company. And that was really exciting.
1: Is there anything that you can share about what they're working on?
2: Oh, yeah. So I can share almost all of it. I think I think I did a tweet some time ago where I said, look, we are working on this. But there's one thing that I'm going to review at Alexer Conference Europe. It's something that I have been working in and out of it for like uh, six months because there's like some paperwork involved. But they're going to announce it really, really soon. Just like putting the final dots on the ice, but most of us, it's no secret, most of us, we are working on the machine learning story, right? So I, th- I think like the majority, maybe like five or potentially six. So for example, we have Chris and Ale, they are working full-time on, on Livebook, for example, And it's worth saying, like, one of the reasons we can also have, like, we can afford two people working full-time on Livebook is because Fly.io, they are also sponsoring the Livebook project. So a huge thank you to Fly and, you know, for, you know, believing in the project and investing on it, like, from early on. So we have, like, two people working on Livebook, and then we have people like Fields and Jonathan who are contributing, like, to the different areas of the, like, machine learning ecosystem. Because one of the things... Let me do a pause here. One one of the things that is worth talking about is because even for like machine learning ecosystem is like quite new. It's not even a year and a half old. There is already like, there's already a lot of work in there. So for example, and a lot of libraries. So we have N X which was how it always started, which is a library for like multi-dimensional arrays for tensor. Vector is one-dimensional, matrices are two-dimensional. And then everything above that, we say it's a tensor, so we can work with like highly structured data like that. And then an X is also that has the, the bindings for running elixir things on the GPU. So that's one library. We have another library, which is called Explorer. And Explorer is data frames for Elixir. If you don't know what data frame is, it's basically tables. It's literally tables. So think like an Excel spreadsheet or database table, but in memory. So you can work on it and work on it like very, very fast. Uh, Why is it called data frames? I don't know. I did not make this choice, but everybody like in the data science, data engineering, they know it as data frames. So we say it's data frames for Elixir. And then we have Axon, which is like neural networks built on top of an X. We have, what else? We have a new project that I have not talked a lot about it because it just started, which is called Scholar. So when you talk about machine learning, a lot of people talk about deep learning, which is neural networks, but there is a whole other area of machine learning outside of deep learning. And the goal of a Scholar is to, is to handle all of that. So there are a bunch of libraries, a live book that I mentioned, right? So we are all doing like contributions here and there. Yeah, so most of the of efforts there. And one of the things, again, is worth saying related to this is that even full we say it's machine learning and forth, a lot of the things that come out of it actually benefits the whole community. I think the best example is Livebook. Like we started really thinking about machine learning, but now like the Nerves team uses it to onboard people experience into embedded devices because you can just run install Livebook on, you know, on, on your card, run that on your device and you have Alexia already running there on your embedded device. You can make some light blink and things like that that's one example of people getting lifebook and 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 expanding it to 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 and use it outside of machine learning and there are people using it for like instrumentation automating some workflows so there are a bunch of other use cases out there another example that you actually discussed on the show rustler precompiled so for example the explorer library which are the dataframes one it uses binding to to Polars, which is a data frame library, who is quite efficient, but implemented in Rust. So the thing is, if you wanted to, now imagine that we are saying, "Hey people, come, come do like data related stuff, data science, data engineer, whatever in Elixir, and you can use this explorer library, and then they start a notebook on their machine." or on-fly, and they want to use Exploder, and they're like, well, you have to install Rust, which is super great to install. It's super easy. But after we install Rust, now we need to compile Exploder, and that requires downloading the cargo index. The first time takes like two minutes, two minutes and a half for me. And then after download the cargo index, you have to compile the dependencies and compile Exploder. So we are saying now that your experience is going to take like five solid minutes to, you know, to just say, hey, I want this and I want to start playing with this table, manipulating this data. So the, the idea with Plus for Precompiled, which you talked about in previous episodes, was exactly, hey, I want to precompile Explorer. And when I publish the package, everything's going to be precompiled. And this whole experience now takes, you know, like 15 seconds. I say, I want to use Explorer. It just downloads the, downloads the package, downloads the precompiled stuff and boom, up and running. And you can use this for anything. You can use it for Rust things inside your company. People can use it for other packages. The other thing that we are working on is that uh, Voitex working on is like um, we want to have Livebook as a desktop app. So, you know, Dominic was here twice already talking about desktop story. And when you need to package a desktop app, you need to do code signing for different platforms. You need to get the icons. There's a bunch of like busy work in that. So our idea what Vitek is working on is to make that a package. It only takes care of the packaging and later we're going to unify with what Dominic is doing. Like we have been using, we have been looking at what Dominic is doing and getting some of the the libraries that he built and, some of the code that he wrote the examples to help us in the process but we want to like package that into into something so it's not about building a desktop application just about packaging we don't care what is inside if it's a if it's an executable or if it's a live web or if it's you know if it's a graphical user interface we don't care we're we are just about the packaging that thing and hopefully, you know, later we're going to sync with Dominic and say, hey, we have solved this problem. And he can continue focusing on things like, you know, how to use Live View for building a great desktop app, right? So, again, those are being driven by machine learning needs, but they're the goal is that they're going to benefit the whole community.
0: That's really exciting. We'll see if we can have Wojtek come on in the future <laughs> and share some of the cool stuff he's working on there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's also working on a co-library, cool which we hope we are going to use it on. And this is a library called Rack. It's another HTTP client built on top of Finch. It's a highly opinionated HTTP client. Uh, so it has a bunch of like really batteries included package. So he, he's working on that, which I think is really important in Livebook as well. So 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 that's another example. So there's a lot to talk to uh, about it. Uh, a lot of things to talk to to, to Vitech. I love
1: the structure that she's set up for for Dashbit. I always felt like that was an ideal way, right, to to handle it. And I and I figured that other consultancies are, you know, in similar models I can think of like Thoughtbot and, and Dockyard in particular, like they have a very well streamlined way to connect with real-world projects to help fund and in your case, like primarily fund and like really, really focus on all this open source stuff, you're right, yeah, of course, like is Elixir something that you created? And so there's a lot of benefit that the Elixir community gets uh, out of that that insight, you know, in that in that time. I just really always admired that that structure. So thank you that you set it up that way to, to not primarily be, you know, looking to please shareholders, for example, <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's not just about the money, you know. We don't want to to just spread money around or hoard it. In what happens more more so more so, but but in your case, it it seems to be proven in the actions that you've taken, which is to spread the knowledge around, right? To spread the 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 work uh, around the the ease of of accomplishing what you want to do. So highly admired. Thank you so much for you know believing in that and practicing that uh, so well uh, in, in your your lifetime, especially with Dashbit here.
2: You're welcome. You know, I I've did like the the big consultancy, like we're almost we're like eighty, almost hundred people, and this time I'm like I was not expecting to get to ten, but this time I'm like no, I, I want you to do the small one, right? So exactly like if we wanted, we could we could just grow and focus on growing and increase the consulting team and then you know my energy and the energy of everybody would get dragged into that but that's not what we want to do we we want to make like in general the things to to work for elixir first and foremost so what are what
0: are some other things that you guys are doing at dash biz anything else you guys want to share
2: yeah. So besides the machine learning, which is like the biggest one, we also welcomed Ukash really recently to work part-time with us. And Ukash is the maintainer of the, or one of the maintainers of the Elixir language server. So we have been talking about like code fragment, for example, in, in today's show and how Lifebook has been driving some of those features. And one of the things is that, you know, we want, like, the language server to use those features, but the language server cannot require Alex 1.14, right? It's not a possibility. So it may take a while for them to integrate this feature, and understandably, that's not, like, on the top of their backlog because they have other things to do, and most of them, they are working on it, and they are, like... You know, free time, for example. So we brought him as one of our collaborators, like working part time or just, you know, funding some of his work to speed up this process, we speed up this feedback and continue improving this story of like auto completion, IDs, integration. So that's, so that's something that we have been focusing on that on the previous releases. And I'm happy to have Lukas with us and making that a little bit more structured. And the other thing, there is another area that we are working on, but we're going to talk about it, uh, the Alexa the Conference. So it's like uh, three main areas. And I think that's like, if you come to my talk in the Alexa Conference Europe, I think that's pretty much how I'm going to, to structure it. Like the, the three main areas that for me personally, like a lot of these, I want to make it clear that it's like, it's personal, like those areas. I know like people, they some people, they're not excited about machine learning and that's completely fine right? And it doesn't necessarily mean that Elixir is going to become like a machine learning only language, right? And to with everything else. But those are the things that I am like excited about and I want to talk about it because, you know, especially looking at ten years, I hope that different people, they're excited about different things. So I want to get people talking about, you know, about the things they're excited about or things that they would like to work on and improve themselves and so on.
0: I think it's worth pointing out here, you're talking about ElixirConf EU. We just mentioned some details here. We'll have a link to the conference website in the show notes. It's a hybrid conference. It's June 9th and 10th of this year, 2022. You had kind of teased that you're going to be maybe sharing some information or something there. Can you give any kind of flavor of what it is you're going to be talking about there to get people excited and to get them signed up to go to that?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll mostly I won't be looking back for the 10 years of Elixir because we've done this on the show. I'll basically say, hey, go listen to the show. But yeah, I'm going to be focused a little bit on, uh, on the areas that I'm excited about. I'm looking forward to contribute, break down a little bit on the things that we are discussing here at the end of this episode and share a, a more structured view of what like me and the B team and other people are going to to be working on. Going to more detail about the machine the exciting machine learning stuff that it's going to come out really really soon, so yeah it's it, you know it's just sharing the excitement and I think that the Alexir confield they are making nice things for the 10 years anniversary, so I think it's going to be like a great conference so hopefully uh, I'm going to be there it's going to be in London, so I'm going to be in person hopefully, and I really hope people is going to have like a a great time in in general. Conferences are usually great, but I hope like, this one, uh, hopefully, is going to be like, greater than usual, uh, have a really nice feeling attached to it.
1: Well, while
0: we have you here, mentioning conferences, I remember a couple of different times in the past years, the idea of Elixir 2.0 has been kind of thrown out there. And what might that look like? And have you thought about when that might happen or anything about that? And while we've got you here, I got to ask you, what about Elixir 2.0?
2: Uh, so definitely sensitive white space. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. <laughs> I think I spoke about this in a conference in conferences and it did not change my plan in Al- for Alex Virtual. So far, we haven't been limited by the language. When we want to do things, do something, hey, we want Elixir running on the GPU, we make Alex running on the GPU. We are not constrained by anything. Because of that, like whenever we need to evolve the language, we can evolve it right now. There, there are no blockers, and if there's something that we don't like, we deprecate. So, my my vision is still for 2.0 is that it's still is going to be like the latest elixir one.something, whatever is going to be at the time, 1.30, who knows? And then we're just going to say, Oh, 2.0, the same as Elixir 1.30 but with all the deprecated features removed, which means that if you have been running on Elixir 1.30 with no deprecation warnings, your app is going to work on 2.0 with no changes whatsoever. Maybe there's going to be like one small thing that will change or two, like if you go to the issues tracker, I think there are like two issues tagged for 2.0 and those, they have to be like breaking changes. But one of the things that I wanna do is that I want to add a future flag to the Elixir command line, like dash dash future. And what that will do is that it will run Elixir with the changes that we are expecting in the future. So you could have that in the CI, like Phoenix could add that to the CI and that's add to the CI. So you can be immune to those changes in the future because you're, you won't be depending on those particular behavior from that. That's kind of my hope, Uh, but there are still no plans. I think, I kind of tell me like, when we stay like four releases, which is like two years without deprecating anything, it means that we are ready for 2.0 because I also don't want to release 2.0 to just like start deprecating more themes because we are not happy with it. Going with the theme, like there is no plan, there is a vision. So I really hope it's just like cleaning the house and removing, maybe at that point, it's going to be like thousands of lines of code. So nothing. (laughs) 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 Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. But the good news is that we are getting it all today, right? We don't have to wait. And I think that's the best.
0: I, I really loved how you pointed out how we're not blocked, like the Elixir language is not blocked from doing these big things that you'd think, oh, that's like almost a a whole core rewrite to be able to do like GPU compilation and things like that. And just how there are ways of doing the things with the language that you're you're not cornered, you're not blocked in to say, oh, this is going to be a huge breaking change. I think that's really cool. That is a a great reason to not need a 2.0 right away. Well, Jose, this has been a lot of fun. It's It's gone long. We thought this is only covering like one release and maybe a little bit about 1.14. <laughs> and and we, somehow we managed to cover a lot more, but it was great. And I just got to say, happy birthday, Elixir. It's been 10 years. Congratulations, Jose, for creating something that has gathered enough momentum and inertia beyond just what you do, but just a lot of the community, the ecosystem, which we kind of alluded to. There's a lot going on here in the community and it's a great community and I love it. And I I love that uh, Elixir is at the center of it. And 10 years, that's huge. That's awesome.
2: Also use this final episode as an opportunity to also thank the Elixir Core team. We have members that that were in the team no longer with us, but we had, I don't know, Seven, eight, maybe nine different people like being part of the language and help steer it, contributing features, and of course all the contributors. Right? I think mean, last time I checked, we passed one thousand contributors. So I also want to use like this, since you are talking a lot about code and Elixir versions. This is a great opportunity to give them a, a last uh, shout out. And all this is on the shoulders of other giants as well, with Erlang
1: and the uh, the team there uh, with OTP. Yeah. So here's to the next ten years, another another ten years of Elixir and OCP, making you know t- data and the flow of data just so much more enjoyable than it you know than than what we had found before Elixir. Gosh, I can't even imagine what te- what what is Elixir going to look like in ten years. That's going to be well, a- according to you, it's going to look the same.
0: <laughs> <laughs> It'll be one dot
1: eighty seven. <laughs> Well, that's great. That's great. Consistency. That's
2: great. Two versions a year, right? So it should be 1.34, something like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> ElixirConf EU is where people can find you next for your speaking and engaging with the community. Where can people go to follow you online or get involved with any of these things that we've talked about, like with the feedback on 1.14, anything like that?
2: GitHub and Elixir Forum, they are, and the Elixir Core mailing list, they are the main places. I also, from time to time on Twitter, just like, you know, announcing something here and there. Well,
0: Jose, this has been a real pleasure and an honor to be part of that five episode countdown to celebrate Elixir's 10 year anniversary. Super grateful for all of your work and all of the work of the core team and all the, all the members of the community, all of you out there who are hearing this and, and are contributing to Elixir, either through hosting meetups and just helping other people answer questions and get up to speed and get a working environment on their machine so they can be playing with Elixir and get involved. I love it. So great job, everyone.
2: Okay. You said two words. And now I have to tell this story, and we are going to finish this with a story that is mostly not related to Elixir. You said the words Final Countdown, I believe, or just Countdown. Oh no. And there's obviously a song.
1: <laughs> Where's this going?
2: Called The Final Countdown, which everybody, as soon as I mentioned it, it's probably already here. Like, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't know if you can sing it, <laughs> because if you sing it, they're going to take the podcast from like the, the store, but you know what I'm talking about and my first new year's eve in poland context i am brazilian right never saw snow in my life until like two months when it was like it was like 0, zero degrees celsius and it was not really cold right so Uh, First Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve in Poland, I was with my wife. I don't remember if we were were married uh, uh, already, but I I think we were already married. So I was my wife and I live in a small city. Actually, I live in a village, like, you know, and then we have a small city close to us that kind of represents the village. And like the small city has like 20,000 inhabitants, not really a lot of people. And we heard that they were going to have fireworks in these small cities who are like, okay, let's go there. Let's go see the fireworks. So uh, my wife, her father and me, we go to this place and we get there. I think it was around 11 or like 11, 15. And when we get there, they are playing the final countdown. And I swear, I'm not exaggerating in any way. They play the final countdown from the moment I arrived, possibly before... Until the New Year's Eve. <laughs> so now, like, anytime somebody says, like, the final countdown, like, oh no.
1: <laughs> oh Just no. Wait, it's. 40, 45
2: minutes they played that song? <laughs> yes. Like so I I, like I was like, what is it like maybe they didn't have a budget because it's a small city, like and there was not a lot of people. There were like, you know, like 30 not 30, like 20, 30 people there. And maybe like they just had a budget for one song and they were like, you know.
1: (laughs) Stretch it out. Maybe
2: the person really like final countdown and then we're just going to play it. So yes, it was like 45 minutes of like final countdown. Right. But if you think about it, it's like it, it, it works, right? If you just like, imagine it's the, you have to make this party like New Year's Eve and you just have a song, right? Final Countdown is perfect because you can play Final Countdown to, to the Final Countdown of the year, right? But you can also play the Final Countdown to the Final Countdown to the new year's eve right so if you think about it like it's a perfect song like to teach recursion or something like that right because well what is the final countdown to the final countdown is the final countdown so you can have you can just chain the f- final countdowns recursively so i guess i was just happy to know that night that i was not like the only functional programmer in town somebody that was really familiar with the concept of recursion uh-huh <laughs> Or something like that. But yeah, 45 minutes of Final Countdown. And every time somebody says it, yeah. Yeah, so I, I wanted to share with it because now anytime somebody hears the word Final Countdown, they can remember this story and then they can remember the song <laughs> immediately going in their head. So mm-hmm. I, I'm no longer alone in, in this, in this <laughs> path, you know.
1: I'm forever going to associate it with functional programming and recursion <laughs> now. Thank you <laughs> for that gift.
2: <laughs> oh, and we know like when we are celebrating the anniversary, you know, maybe we can do like a final countdown as well, you know, at the event. (laughs) Many, many possibilities. There are many ideas now, I'm sure.
0: So check the show notes for following up on that. But if you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, dear listener, I am impressed. This has been a long journey, but it's been a great one. And thank you, Jose. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.